And let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you for this community and for the chance to engage with your holy word. Be present with us, guide our discussion, and help us deepen our understanding of scripture and our appreciation of each other. Help us to grow in knowledge and spirit so we may manifest your kingdom here on earth. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 I'm, I'm doing fine right here. You can hear me? <clears throat> so I think what we're going to do is have everybody mute. Um, and... Uh, and then when we're in, if, if you have a question, if you could put it in the chat, that would be very helpful because David has um, slides to share. And so when he is sharing his screen, I'm only going to be able to see three of you at a time. Um, so the best way to get your question noticed is to put it in the chat. Did I miss anything, David? I don't think so. Okay. All right. All right. Well, um, uh, so thanks. It's, Ian, it's lovely to see everybody's faces here. Uh, you know, to show up for, a, for a, a second one of these in the series that at least I'm doing um, for you represents probably the triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> um, but, um, but we'll thanks. see. Um, so I'm going to start by sharing my screen. I could, and then um, just kind of talk about what we're going to do here. So, um, so the topic this evening um, uh, that we're going to um, discuss um, is uh, Jesus uh, and the Jews in John's Gospel. Um, and I think what we have to acknowledge um, flat out um, is that this is a significant root of Christian anti-Judaism. And it's really impossible to talk about this topic, to talk about this chapter, um, without acknowledging the fact that that's what um, that's where we're going um, uh, over the course of this. Um, you know, and uh, I guess I'm because I'm in such a habit, um, given my main workplace of disclosures. I don't obviously have any financial disclosures. That's what we always have to do. Um, but and you don't have to know everything. But um, some of the things that have influenced my thinking on this is that um, my area of interest in ethics research, um, in large part, is how late Weimar and National Socialist um, medicine. Um, so thoroughly embraced the program of the National Socialist Democratic uh, uh, Workers' Party, that is the Nazi Party. Um, and I'm a member of, uh, of uh, sort of, um, not informal, but um, a virtual group worldwide um, that's called the Center for Medicine After the Holocaust, um, that are a group of people that are interested um, in that. You know, I think I'd also like to just think, uh, start by sharing sort of three stories um, and, um, and having us maybe reflect on them. I can stop sharing for a second while we do that, um, just so we can see each other's faces. Um, it, because I think that this whole idea of how um, Jews are portrayed in John's gospel, um, as I said, I think is one of the significant roots of Christian anti-Judaism. And I think we have to have to come face to face with that. You know, I think we all have our own um, experiences of that. Um, uh, 
The first one I can think of is I, I grew up from about age three to 17 or 18 um, in the suburbs of Chicago. The little town I lived in actually had a fairly significant um, Jewish population. Most of my friends were, were Jewish uh, growing up. And I remember uh, every year on Good Friday, the mothers of several of my friends would keep their children inside and not allow them to go outside um, because they grew up with memories um, of churches spilling out um, on Good Friday, inflamed by sermons um, from pastors um, and getting beaten up as children, the parents did. Um, their grandparents could remember that Good Friday was a day that many of the pogroms started um, in Eastern Europe uh, and in the Russian empire. Um, and so the fact that that was still casting a shadow, you know, that that kind of trauma can be multi-generational, um, to me was striking um, as, uh, as, as a child and something, you know, I, I, I struggled and still struggle to process. Um, I remember in college, um, I was sitting around, you know, shooting the breeze with, um, with a couple of people I knew, one of whom was a really close friend, both of whom were Jewish. Um, and um, one of these men, the one who wasn't my close friend, turned to the other one and said, would you trust this man, this Gentile with your life? Uh, and, you know, we were all college kids. And Mark said, yeah, of course, sure. Uh, and he looked at me and said, you were a fool. Um, you know, and so I thought about that, about what would lead someone to come to that conclusion. Um, and I guess the final story uh, is one from when I was in medical school um, and I was um, uh, they, living in, in, in Paris, I mean, for like a semester or something uh, to do uh, some work there um, at the National Neurologic Hospital. And I lived um, in a neighborhood that had traditionally been um, the Jewish neighborhood of Paris, the Marais, um, and therefore I wasn't very far from the um, main synagogue. And so as I was walking into the hospital one Saturday morning, I came around the corner, and this was during one of the periods when um, ultra right wing um, uh, racist um, and anti Jewish actions were um, uh, flourishing in France as they as they sort of periodically do from time to time. And it came around an, an old man who's obviously on his way to synagogue, um, who is being kind of pushed around and roughed up um, by a lot of skinheads. Um, and I, I have to admit, it it just struck me immediately as maybe one of the most anger provoking and, and obscene things um, I'd, I'd ever seen. Um, and so that image has struck with me about the idea that, um, that this is still a vibrant force um, in our world. Um, and so I think that one of our responsibilities is to perhaps unpack it a bit um, and see um, how it is uh, this, um, this came to pass. Um, so maybe if we can just go back to the slides for a second. Sorry. So um, I'm going to make the contention this evening in our time together that anti-Judaism is not an aberration. I think that we like to get ourselves off the hook uh, and say, well, this is practiced by some people who are kind of out on a fringe and aren't central. Um, and I think it really is a very central feature and has been for millennia um, of European and European-derived societies. Um, and I think we have to acknowledge, and we're going to try and go through this this evening, um, that Christian scripture, Christian doctrine, and Christian theology 
have a central part in that history. And we obviously don't have enough time to go through all of those. So I think we can try to stick with the scripture. And if time permits, we can talk about some of the focus in, in doctrine and theology. Um, and I think of the gospels, John is recognized by most scholars as the most central um, to Christian anti-Judaism. So, you know, if we accept what Orwell said, that language is always the first battleground, what's interesting is that the term Jew or the Jews is used in John more than in all three of the synoptic gospels combined. Um, there are 67 times in the Gospel of John, if you count, um, that that word is used. The synoptic Gospels tend to describe people by their roles or their traditions. So people are described as scribes, they're described as members of the Sanhedrin, they're described as Pharisees or Sadducees. Um, but in, um, in John's Gospel, almost always, they are characterized as a single group defined by one thing, what we might think of as othering, right? So these are them, the Jews, all of them lumped together. Um, and rarely are they singled out separately. Um, Nicodemus, who we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, is one of the few who's given an identity um, separate from the Jews and is actually demonstrated or, or actually described as a Pharisee. Uh, but if we accept this idea that um, the first move here is to characterize an entire group of people by a single descriptor, uh, and then we think how else that's been done in history um, and all the other times in history that's been done to this particular um, uh, population of individuals who were as, as varied as any other groups uh, of individuals. So let's start by examining some text. And this is the one time we'll take a, a move out of, uh, of the eighth chapter. And one of the things I think that we uh, can have all seen is that John tends to use very dualist imagery, right? There's light and dark, good and evil. And from the very prologue, um, the Jews uh, in this are identified as apart from uh, and opposed to Jesus, right? So uh, we hear the word was the real light. He was coming into the world that had come into being through him and the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not accept him. But to those who did accept him, he gave power to become children of God who were not born of human stock, but from God himself. So let's just stop there for a second um, and, and ponder what that beginning does um, in terms of the characters that we're about to hear and see. Um, I, I know that Dean Hill um, set us up with the earlier description uh, of the prologue, but I'd like to examine here what the specific use of that prologue and this imagery of both dualism uh, and then the people from which he came, but who would not hear him. Um, and what does that do? It sort of if, voids everything that's come before this in terms of being authentic. Okay. So that there's an attempted erasure, if I'm hearing you right, um, the idea that the previous tradition, um, the, the, the previous 
you know, millennia of a relationship uh, between God and um, humanity um, is now rendered somehow null and void. John? Us versus them. Uh, over six miles. Mm -hmm. Okay. Us versus them. Joan? Yeah, I was just going to say it separates uh, people. I mean, uh, uh, we and they, and they, we and them. Exactly. That's exactly what Mimi said. Walter? You're muted, Walter. I, I understand that, but I, I also trying to contextualize, you know, where the author's coming from, because I mean, if, if you were writing it today, that sentiment makes a lot of sense, but maybe at the time in order to, in order to really set Jesus apart and distinguish him from other purported prophets or whatnot, he really needed to sharpen the distinction. Um, and, and so I, I, while, it, while that type of language certainly is open to be abused, I don't know as to whether the author intended it. And, and it was maybe just a device to, 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 to get a certain point across. It's a really different kind of language than the other three gospels that we now accept as canonical, um, used to describe who he is, why he came, where he is. Um, and so um, the authors of Matthew, Mark, and Luke Acts um, don't use that as a means of, of distinguishing Jesus um, from, uh, from others uh, who have come. And so, um, so I agree, you know, it's always dangerous to see things, um, although we read this in our time, um, because it is for our time. Um, but it is interesting to note that three other writers approached this and didn't use that dualistic cosmology, um, nor um, make a first move to talk about ch essentially children of light and children of dark. Um, so what, what does that tell us about the purpose um, of, of this author? I keep thinking that kind of language makes it harder to come together. It really is separating. Either you believe in one or you believe in the other. And there's no middle ground. There's no way to come together. There's no way, um, if you believe in Jesus, there's no way to bring, it's not a way to bring people to him. You know, and, and if we get back to Walter's point about the context of the time, remember that when we think this was being written, um, the temple is already fallen, um, destroyed. The Sadducees have disappeared as a force. The priesthood in Israel has disappeared as a force. What remains is rabbinic Judaism, fundamentally embodied by the Pharisees. The Essenes have been overrun in their desert strongholds and have been scattered to the winds. Um, and so two of the main factions that remain in and around um, this people um, are the Jesus movement and, uh, and then the descendants or the, the, the then incarnation um, of the Pharisees, what we've come to think of now is, um, and were the um, predecessors of rabbinic Judaism. Um, uh, 
And so, um, and this is written, scholars are fairly convinced a bit later um, than, um, uh, than the other three synoptic gospels. Um, and so it may be that, um, that part of this is that the conflict between the Jesus movement um, and the Pharisees and their um, uh, associates um, has become perhaps a little sharper um, uh, in the years, um, uh, because this would, we estimate probably be written 50 years after the destruction of the temple. Um, and so that's a generation um, uh, that's lived through, uh, through that um, loss. Uh, and uh, an entire generation has grown up without knowing um, the temple and the place that it um, held in Jewish life. So. Paul? Yeah, thank you, David. For me, this is a textbook case, textbook case of people who are uncomfortable in working in the gray world where there are shades of gray and shades of truth and falsity and they feel much more comfortable in the black and white world because they get just our, our, they feel without a foundation as soon as the world becomes gray. And so by John just talking about the people of the light and the dark, uh, it makes it very easy for him to go through his mental logic, however that is, rather than accept the fact that there's a little bit of that in each one of us and the different groups have the whole spectrum of each one of them. So I think this is just for me, a classic example of things we see up to today. Black and white is a lot easier to think about. Let's take a dive then into um, uh, chapter uh, eight itself. Um, so uh, in eight, 22 and 24, um, we have here um, in essence what the author's cosmology is uh, of the Jews. Um, and Jesus addresses them and says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I have told you already, you will die for your sins. That is not the image of the good shepherd um, who wanders off from the flock to find the one lost lamb um, and bring it back home, right? Um, that's not that guy. I keep wondering through all this, where is the love? <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and this flies, um, you know, in the face of any of a number of things that have already gone before. Remember, Paul's writings are already pretty well known by this time. Um, they certainly antedate um, uh, all of these gospels. Uh, and remember, Paul reminds us in, in the Romans um, uh, that, uh, in, in essence, don't fret um, about the Jews. They're all going to heaven. Um, doesn't sound like that's the message here. He does say that they're all going to heaven. He does say in, in this, that in his, his belief that we don't have to worry about um, uh, the conversion um, of that population because in fact they're already with God. He said lots of other things and lots of other places and lots of other people attributed um, uh, to him say lots of other things. Um, uh, but um, uh, Dave and then Joan. When he, thank you. When he says below, is he talking of 
this world or is he talking about Hades? Well, we'll get to that in a second. Um, I think that this passage is a little bit unclear, uh, but in a moment, um, uh, uh, that will be sharper. Okay, thank you. Uh, David, what what are the uh, uh, the people that that Jesus is uh, saying are below? What what are they standing for? What is he so angry? I mean, it sounds as if he is taking a black and white position. And what what are they doing that's causing that? Yeah, let's take a look. See it at, at the next um, uh, part oops, uh, of the chapter that we're going to look at here. Um, so, so Jesus, uh, John's view of Jews who profess to believe in Jesus, he says, to the Jews, to the Jews that believed in him, Jesus said, "If you make my word your home, the truth will set you free." It's a conditional if, which is interesting. Um, and then, when the people to whom he says that sort of say, "Kind of, how dare you? We're descendants of Abraham, with whom the Almighty made the first covenant." Uh, Jesus replies, I know that you are descended from Abraham, but you want to kill me because my words find no place in you. What I speak of is what I have seen at my father's side, and you too put into action the lessons you have learned from your father. And who is the father of the Jews in this? He goes on to say, you are from your father, the devil, and you prefer to do what your father wants. He was a murderer from the start, he was never grounded in the truth. There is no truth in him at all. When he lies, he is speaking true to his nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Whoever comes from God listens to the words of God. And the reason why you do not listen is that you are not from God. So um, whatever historic context we put that in, in terms of time and place. That's a little um, difficult um, to dismiss um, in, in terms of those words. I mean, basically, um, this is um, quite literally demonizing the population um, of, uh, of Jews, especially those who refused um, to profess belief as it's written in this text. Um, and it's it, and it's not it's not only demonizing these specific people who might be living there, but it's like your entire your entire belief system, your entire ancestry, is the problem. That's it's this is shocking. Yeah, and remember another place that the author of John is coming out of um, is is a a, a dualist Gnostic. Um, or at least certainly flirts with Gnosticism about this idea that the universe is a constant struggle between um, God and then an almost co-equal evil force. Um, and so that's very different than other gospels understanding of what the nature of Satan is, certainly different than what is in um, uh, uh, the book of uh, the Revelation, um, fallen angels, right? Uh, but in this, uh, we get this sense um, that all these people who thought for generations and generations that they were worshiping the Almighty are now told that actually they've been worshiping um, the evil one. Um, Mimi? Mimi, you're muted. 
but where does he get this? You know, he's a Jew. He's grown up in the tradition. I mean, what in the world is he, where is he coming from? Is thinking experientially, whatever. It's like nothing else we've read or I've read. So thoughts from folks? You know, again, uh, what we have are, are, would have remained canonical are four different versions um, of the life and teachings. Um, this one we know um, doesn't really share much of anything um, with the other three, right? If we think back to this so-called synoptic gospels, um, there's Mark, um, the earliest, and then large parts of Mark are essentially completely plunked and dropped in, into both Matthew and Luke. There are things um, that are proper to Matthew and proper to Luke, that is, they're not in anybody else's. Uh, and then there's a large amount of overlap that Matthew and Luke both share um, that's um, sometimes referred to as um, Q, um, uh, the, the second source, um, which has never actually been, the, the text of which has never been found, but its existence is hypothesized because these two different works have it there. This has none of the above, right? We don't have Mark, we don't have any parts of Matthew. There's some stories that are, but there's many stories in, in this that exist only in this gospel, right? Um, Nicodemus um, is totally a creature of this gospel and of, uh, of no other. Um, so we have four different stories which tell four different versions um, for different remembrances of the life. Um, and to, to Mimi's uh, point, what is this version of the life telling us? And what is this, when, where is this version of the life leading us if we choose to follow? Joan? I'm not sure where it's leading us, but I think David, you've been making the point that this was written after the fall of the temple. Uh, so uh, I'm assuming that John is feeling more panicky. I mean, just, just as we, our generation is influenced by the Vietnam War. I mean, I, th I think there are, I, so where it's taking us, I'm not really sure, but I think it's, it's revealing that John, it was experiencing things very differently than Mark and maybe Matthew and Luke. So I think the point you raise is a really interesting one because remember the fall of the temple um, is a huge crisis um, mm. spiritually in the life of Israel because it was believed that, that God, God's self actually resided in the Holy of Holies, right? You would go there and you would commune with God and that was God's presence. Mm. Um, and that works as long as there is a temple. But once the temple is destroyed, where did God go? Mm. Um, and, and people in these communities wrestle with that. Um, the Pharisees were never terribly enamored of the temple in the first place anyway. They believed in the law and its, its following. And so for them, it was less of a crisis. Um, but for other people that may not have sold. And so, so as we sit here and listen to this um, story, um, this 
in some ways, you know, we can make the argument is that it, it's, it's an attempt at creating an alternative to the destruction of the temple. That is another place where God incarnate is, or God uh, among us is, Emmanuel, God with us. Um, mm. And also an alternative to those bereft by the crisis that the destruction of the temple created. Paul? Right? Mm -hmm. So I totally hear you. And it, it, and it seems that what I was thinking about was this is not an, ex the other gospels, there's a sweetness to them because Jesus was sort of an, an extension of what came before uh, and, you know, enlivening what came before. So, you know, if, if God isn't around anymore, one way of saying is, it, oh, it's such a shame that he's not around, but go to Jesus, it's okay, which is very different from saying your total approach to God was wrong and therefore go to Jesus. So I, I still say that there's a nastiness that I don't, I don't see where the nastiness is coming from. I understand that, yeah, you have to have something really different because the thing disappeared, but you don't have to be so sour about it. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that I just said, Paul, is that um, if you thought about this, the destruction of the temple um, was not only, you know, catastrophic at a cultural level, um, but if God is God, and that's where God dwelled, um, why would God have allowed that to happen? Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you sit there wondering why it is, you know, bad things happen to good people, which has been a longstanding role of religious thought, um, you have to come up with some theory um, about why it is um, that that was allowed to happen. Um, and so I guess what I'm suggesting um, is that this is a fairly radical and harsh answer to that question, um, to say that, well, what must have happened is that people went so far astray from this, that, that in essence, God allowed himself, God allowed God's self to, to leave the temple and be destroyed and to land someplace else. So it makes the temple language of Jesus's yeah. discussion of his own death and resurrection quite a bit more literal um, than metaphoric. If the temple's destroyed and now he's here with us, then he's the alternative to the temple. But the approach that's taken um, in this you know, kind of cosmology, I would agree with you is, is pretty harsh because it means that anybody who doesn't get on board um, is, is lost and in the outer darkness. Hmm. Paul, Lavecchio, and then Mimi. Yeah, so I think we all agree that this gospel is a very difficult one to truly comprehend and put in the context of the first, uh, the, the synoptic gospels. And it makes me wonder why this gospel of John was included in, in the New Testament. Why have it there? It's, it's, it's totally, it appears to be many parts of it totally in contradiction to the message that we all love from Jesus. And so it's put in there, it seems, as some kind of counterpoint and What's the, what was the rationalization for that? And what redeeming values are there in this gospel having it carried along with all of the subsequent harm it did to millions of people through the centuries? Mm. 
So the only, the only thing I'd add to your question, Paul, is, you know, I have to sort of say that the Cowley Fathers are really among the nicest, gentlest group of men that I've ever met. And why they adopted this as, as essentially their mascot um, has always been a source of puzzlement to me. All right. Thanks. Me too. Mimi. Oh. Am I Mimi and then Barbie and then Sandy? Mimi, you're muted. When I listen to this, I am so shocked and I wonder, is it any wonder why Jews through history have not totally mistrusted, if not hated Christians? I mean, this is awful. I go back to what you said, David, about um, why did God leave after the temple was destroyed and this kind of thing. And I go back that the gift that was given to us as humans of free choice and free thinking. And um, we can't expect all the answers to come from God, even... I mean, they're, they're probably there, but we also hope to grow and accept responsibility too for our faith, um, which is difficult because our faith is growing and is not always perfect, but... Um, To have a situation like that, we've got to work it out too. Um, no God's there with us, but um, look for the messages ourselves. Um, I guess I'm just trying to think of our responsibility with the gifts that God gave us in free choice. And, and you know, I think of how we uh, will suffer from the sins of our forebears and things like that. Um, we have to learn, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I also think too, one of the things I'm thinking too, going back to Jesus in, in um, the temple, throwing out the money changers and times when he's shown anger. Um, I go back to, to feeling that he's, he's completely divine and completely human. Um. Thank you, Barbie. I think to reflect on both of those, just for us to, to, to kick around as an idea. Um, uh, in addition, you know, to the images of Jesus being very different here, um, a belief is a word that appears in John over and over and over again. 
belief turns out to be really important in this vision of being a member of the movement. Whereas one's actions turn out to be much more important. For example, if we look at the synoptic um, uh, gospel of Mark, um, it's what it is you do um, that matters um, in those uh, in, in that gospel and in the synoptics much more um, than, and it's not that belief is dismissed, um, but who you are is revealed through your actions. And here, as we can see, who you are is defined by what it is you believe and to whom it is you listen. And so again, that's a really different kind of dynamic um, that's being established. Um, and so I think that loops back to Paul's question, um, why on earth was this in, in, in the canon? Why did they put this in here? And if we think about this in, in a time when the church is expanding into the, the early church, is expanding into lots of parts of the world that really aren't populated by, um, by Jews and synagogues and is attempting to have a conversation um, with other people that would otherwise be referred to as Gentiles or pagans or whatever it is you want. Um, this is, um, becomes very close to many moves in classic Greek philosophy. Um, and so this is a way that you can bring in people who are much used to ideas such as logos um, light, dark, etc., um, and uh, and some of the imagery in the Synoptic Gospels, which is much more akin um, to uh, um, many parts of Hebrew Scripture, is maybe less available um, to that group of people. So, if you're trying to evangelize folks, mm -hmm. um, this may be um, an instrument for some of your audience um, that wouldn't necessarily um, resonate. Um, uh, with um, uh, the rabbi's teachings that we hear in the Synoptic Gospels. Sandy? I, um, I just remember studying this with Noah um, and we spent almost a year going through John. And chapter eight was one that was, you know, we were very troubled by, but you know, the, the historical part of this, the fact that this is almost two or three generations past Jesus' life. A lot of this is, uh, I think, because of the chaos that was in the world in those days, and the Jonian community had withdrawn from the Jewish community, and they were seeing this as separate. And what was explained at the time when we discussed this was that these people were scared to death of being annihilated so they're xenoph there's a xenophobic part of this i think in chapter eight that kind of spells out why they're circling the wagons and saying these things that they are and saying you know you can choose the light or you can choose the dark but you've got to be you know in the light to be with us and to move forward because that's all there is Paul Lavecchio. Uh, thanks. I can't help but reply and respond to you, uh, Sandy. Uh, while I can acknowledge the logic of the times that you were talking about and how people might be wanting to lash out, you know, words like this in a gospel could be words used by today's jihadists. You know, kill the kill the enemies. Not you know. So I, I there's no way in my mind so far that I've heard that I wouldn't want to just tear this. John's gospel right out of the New Testament. Back with it. 
I mean, I don't want, I don't like this part of our religion. So there, <laughs> you know, well, this is not roses. This is the good, bad, and the ugly. You know, this is yeah. the ugly part. And yeah, today, like the, the alternative truths, you know, the alternative um, notions are right here. This is part of our humanity. We're in the middle of it. Oh, okay. So, so I think that's a perfect lead into my, my last question for us um, this evening, um, it, which is um, just disappeared. Sorry. <laughs> uh, we'll find it here. So there, there it went. There. So um, how do we confront this scripture in our time? Right? Um, we can go back and scholars will tell us all sorts of things about the hypothesized Johannine community, um, about the relationship of this to Gnosticism, to um, you know, Platonic philosophy as it was um, emerging, all of those things. Um, but, uh, and you know, as, as, as tempting, I'm not sure we throw maybe the entire gospel over the side of the boat, but the eighth chapter would be, um, <laughs> would be, one, you don't necessarily say I'm going to entirely miss. I don't know. Um, but in any event, um, how do we confront the scripture, especially with Mimi's observation? You know, people trust us if we prove ourselves worthy of trust, right? I mean, that's the sort of basic idea behind trust. Um, and, you know, one of the things we do know is that this chapter here, and other related um, uh, verses throughout John's gospel have been used um, over the course of you know, several millennia of Christianity to whip people into anti-Judaic furor um, uh, and, uh, and then set them out into the streets. We have to acknowledge that. And if, even though none of us did it, it is part of our history. And as much as it's part of our history, we'd like to wish didn't exist, it did. Um, and so how do we then confront this scripture um, in the time that we, um, that we live in? How do we make sense of it? Um, what do we do with it? Dave and then Paul, uh, Paul Hoffman. Sorry. <laughs> um, I think we have to uh, put our, our big boys and girls pants on here and say this is you know is a historic account and i don't know that it's really an account but it's their concepts and for me as i and you're peeling back the onion here david for me to ideas that never occurred to me but i i would see that the purpose of this is to develop hatred for Jews. Um, now, is that how we choose to live? Is how, that how we want to go forward? Well, we can read a lot of historic accounts of all kinds of things. It's not how we want to live, but it is what took place before us and helps paint the picture of where we are today a little bit. Thank you. Yeah. So, so if I could just ask, uh, um, uh, subsequent to that. So then, um, how much um, are we allowed, any of us, um, to say, you know, um, I don't like this particular bit, um, so I'm not going to go along with that. But I kind of like all the rest. Um, 
you know, and that's the tension that exists between what um, uh, Bobby pointed out, um, you know, the idea that we have, at least many of us believe we are endowed um, with reason, skill, and memory, um, uh, as we are told, um, and that we're supposed to use those um, in the exercise of our religion. And yet, um, I don't think we want it to end up like a cafeteria um, where we sort of say, you know, this week I kind of like this one and that one, and I'm going to, no, 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 I'm not so sure um, about that. You know, I think we struggle with that, with anything, with our scripture, uh, with our creed, you know. Um, I have to sort of say that there's lots of weeks um, uh, when I'm saying it that uh, not all of it goes down very well. Um, and if I were probably honest, I'd stop speaking at those points. Um, and sometimes I do. Um, so how do, we, how do we deal with that tension about saying, um, okay, this existed in a context, it was written by humans who are imperfect beings. Um, and yet, and, and so maybe I'll just sort of say, this is not how I see and understand things without- I think we, I think we have to wash it down with love okay. and with kindness. Thank you. And where does atonement um, fit into that kindness, right? Mm. Because we do have to acknowledge uh, that, um, that there were historic wrongs um, that were done to large swaths of people. Um, but this particular evening, we're focusing on, um, uh, on, on one of the roots, but only one of the roots um, of, of Christian anti-Judaism. Um, and um, I, I think atonement fits in. Uh, it is very, very complex. And I, for one, if there's gonna be atonement, it's like doing the dishes. I wanna get them done, get it done now. I don't wanna leave it for my grandchildren to have to futz with it. Thanks. I think our liturgy reminds us of that when we say that the confession, you know, I've sinned against, I've sinned and I will repent and I wanna turn my ways. And I think the chapter eight really shows us the darkest part of our humanity that we have to be turned away from. The grim reminder, but that's it. There's Mimi. Mimi and then Joan. Mimi, you're muted. Mimi, you're still muted. There I am. Um, there you are. Uh, okay. I one little way that I'm trying to wriggle out of this is when David mentioned that this was statements were being provided or heard by all sorts of people from the ancient world. We in this Bible focus on the Jews, Hebrews, but all the Greeks, all the everybody else in the world at the time. And so is it slightly more acceptable that Jesus is quoted as saying, you've been worshiping the devil to non-Abrahamic religions like the Greeks, Egyptians, whoever else? Mm. So, so one of the answers to that is, so one of the great scholars of, of anti-Judaism uh, uh, is uh, David Nirenberg. 
um, who wrote a wonderful book called Anti-Judaism, the Western Tradition, if you're interested in diving into this further. But one of the things he points out is that, as we say, you know, so this set of scriptures as they're assembling themselves starts encountering all sorts of people, uh, many of whom had not necessarily had much to do with Jews before this, because in fact, there weren't any Jews where they were. But as he points out, this particular chapter of this particular gospel instructs them on what to do with Jews when they encounter them. And then after the great diaspora um, and um, the spread of, of Jews over Western Europe and Iberian Europe and all sorts of other places um, uh, where they were, um, he makes the very cogent argument that this was used as part of the ammunition um, for the Western tradition of profound anti-Judaism, especially among peoples who had never really encountered them um, historically. Um, so that is, um, is, is another part of, of, of this chapter of this gospel that I think we have to own. Joan and then Barbie. Yeah, I, I, I may be going off on a tangent, but uh, the story of the woman at the well, uh, that, that I, I love that story, actually. Uh, and there, I think we are seeing, granted, uh, Jesus is taking a position against Pharisees, against the Jews, uh, but uh, he is also... Um, the let let him who is without sin cast the first stone. It's a it's a it's a lovely message actually. So, but maybe that is not what we're really grappling with. Um, I belong to a book group here in my little condo village, and um, at one point we had a meeting, and I forget what book we were reading. It was probably one on. We read, I remember we went through a session where we read a, a lot on the Holocaust and stuff. And I remember in the discussion saying um, that I, I don't understand um, why Jews are, what causes the discrimination uh, uh, of them in this country now? And this one older Jewish woman spoke up and she said, because we're considered Jesus killers. And my heart just sunk because I felt like we were out of that realm. And that's when I realized as you said, David, I had to own that. And even I have heard I am not a prayer book scholar by any means. I'm a lover of the prayer book, but um, I hear that one of the things about pushing for rewriting, especially in the Good Friday service, is a lot of anti-Semitism. How do we own that? you'd think we'd get rid of it immediately. So it's still with us. What's our responsibility for that? I mean, in, in handling that, what do we, I mean, yeah, you can do what I did. I just said, you know, I, 
of all my friends, Christian friends and everything, we just do not believe that the Jews are, um, are Christ killers. Um, and, but that doesn't go very far when you have something that's come and been so much a part of them in their discrimination. I also had a wonderful Jewish neighbor who wouldn't go certain places because they had discriminated against letting Jews in um, and shared some other things that she in her life had uh, experienced um, because of uh, prejudice and um, So it's, it's still very much with us. We can't talk of it just in the past. We've got to address it ourselves in some way. Anyway. Paul Hoffman and then San Sandy. Yeah, and what I'm struck by is so especially in this parish, I find myself being an increasingly confident Christian and living in it more. Um, but at the same time, what I'm hearing tonight is the necessity for humility, uh, especially in talking with people who, who aren't Christian. Um, and it's funny because we, the parish talks quite a bit about evangelism and getting other people in the system. And so it, I, I think what I'm left with is the the idea, and I think David Marsh talked about loving this, is doing it with kindness, bringing people in with kindness. And one, uh, one way of being kind is, is understanding, doing a better job of being self-educated about what it is to be a Christian uh, so that I can deal with people who are not Christian yet in a more kind manner. Yeah, I, I, uh, while we're talking, that you know, the the uh, the passion play at Abramagal plays every ten years, and Elizabeth and I were there in 2010, and we intended to go back again this year. And every every ten years, they rewrite that script. So through the ages, if you read this history of that, it's it's a constant conversation that's going on about this. And when we saw it in 2010, they had actually rewritten the Jewish part out of it. And it was the, the Roman centurions who were the ones that killed Jesus. And they were. And, and they were, when you think about, you know, the pressure uh, about the whole story. And it was not the, the Jews that killed them. You know, the Jews were just, uh, you know, really kind of bystanders in this drama that was played out. The Jews were the ones that pushed it, but they didn't do the actual killing. I mean, we're nitpicking. But it's very interesting that the, that conversation has been going on for since the 1300s and that every 10 years that play plays out. And um, during uh, not the Nazi times, you know, Hitler wanted to bring in that whole hate the Jews thing. And the village was able to prevail and keep it out. But it was not totally. well, not totally, but, you know, that conversation is in books about that passion play and the struggles those people had with the, you know, the whole gospel of John. 
John Small. Yes, thank you, Christina. Um, just a couple of quick observations from coming from someone who, as most of you know, uh, grew up Jewish and converted to Christianity three years ago when I was baptized at St. Anne's by Kate Malin. Uh, first of all, I want to say, David, I really appreciated the three stories you told at the very beginning. I think they were very telling. I can relate to them. They resonate with me. And I imagine that others feel the same way. Secondly, I want to mention what Mimi mentioned, that we often forget that Jesus was Jewish and that um, I like to think that he even had a bar mitzvah. We don't really know that for sure. Some of you may have heard me say that before. We know very little about Jesus's life when he was growing up and when he was a teenager. But one thing we do know is that he was a scholar of the Old Testament. He, he particularly loved Isaiah which I do too, and I know many of us do. Um, and he taught the elders in the synagogue. There are some stories about that in some of the gospels. I'd like to picture that happening. Uh, so I think it's important that we always remember that Jesus was Jewish. And lastly, I just wanna share a brief story that reflects on something else Mimi said, which was that how Jewish people feel uh, anti-Christian sentiments. That's not really the topic for tonight, it's the reverse. But um, I like what you said, Mimi, about that because my mother, bless her, so uh, was, a, was a very devout Jew, and she believed that almost everyone was anti-Semitic, and she believed that she just didn't trust any Christians, and this is the upbringing in which I was raised, and it really had a sort of a negative effect on me. She also believed very strongly that Jews were the chosen people, and I think that that is also sometimes the root of some anti-Judaism in, in this country now, that Jewish people sometimes act as if they are uniquely chosen. Uh, some Christians believe that, some Jews even believe that, I suppose. But um, my mother was a great example of someone who really didn't trust any Christians because she really just felt that, that they believed that we, were, we Jews were Christ killers and other reasons for anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. So I guess I would wrap up by saying that I, I like what Dave Marsh said, that we need to pray for love and for kindness and for tolerance. Um, I think that there is still a lot of anti-Judaism in the world today. I would say less than there used to be, but maybe that's naive. But I think the answer and our, our responsibility is to pray for love and kindness and tolerance. I think that's a pretty spectacular place to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I, I, I think- Thank um, you, John. I, I think, yeah, I think especially, you know, Tolerance has gotten really kind of a bad name um, uh, over the years. Um, I, I think because, in fact, um, you know, it seems like you're just not doing terrible. It seems like a little bit like a, a thin broth. Um, but given the last bit of time we've all been through, um, given the time that we're still negotiating, um, I think that maybe setting the bar at tolerance is the first expectation. If we can just get there, um, it might then be easier for us to get to, um, uh, to, to love. David, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, David. A nice, great, great session. Thank you so much. Very, very helpful, very beautiful. Thank you. Mm. Blessings on your evenings, friends. <laughs>